Thanks for listening. Yeah, I really mean that. Thanks for listening. As we approach the solstice of 2022, the end of yet another long year, a year of dislocation and uncertainty, a year of possibility and growth, this is the 250-something episode of Akimbo. And a long time ago, about five years, when we got to episode 16, we did an all Q&A episode. So here it is again in repeats. We're coming to the end of five years together. And I got to say, this body of work has been a thrill to create. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Kevin Beach, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. Well, it's episode 16, end of season one. Thanks for sticking with it. If you're not a subscriber, I hope you'll become one and you can catch up. We're trying to make episodes that are sort of timeless. 16 episodes in, I thought today would be a great day to catch up on some questions that are a little bit too general or that came in a little bit off cycle, stuff that you'd like me to talk about, and I'll dive in. Hi, Seth. This is Wendy Race Hartman calling from Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Regarding status, when you described the foreman at the table in terms of status with phones, you ended with, and around it goes. My question is, if each have a different view on status, do they really affect one another's status with their phones? In the episode on status roles, I talked about the fact that we can't be certain that other people measure status the way that we do. What makes our culture interesting compared to, say, a game of Parcheesi, is that there are different finish lines, different people keeping track of different things. And what ends up happening is just when it looks like someone's going to clear the board and win in one direction, that she's made the most money or he has the most friends, suddenly somebody else's goal of status kicks in and the cycle persists because very few people live their entire life seeking just one sort of status. And also, really important, the way that we measure status keeps changing. So in the courts of Europe in the 1800s, there was lots of talk of power. But what was power in those days compared to power now? Or our conceptions of beauty? They change culturally, but they also change as an individual ages. And technology is really the wild card here, because what technology keeps doing is shuffling who has status because the connection economy, our ability to see and be seen, to influence and be influenced, has been shifted so much by all the changes in our productivity and in our media. So wherever you are on the status carousel, you have two big choices. The first one is this. If the way you're measuring status isn't making you happy, if it's not helping you make the change you seek to make, perhaps it's worth measuring status a different way. That if having more Twitter followers than your friends isn't worth the journey that it took to get there, abandon it. It's somebody else's metric, not yours, not anymore. And the second thing to consider is this. Wherever you are on the status merry-go-round, yes, you can change what you're measuring, but you can also understand that as technology changes, 
as culture shifts, your spot can change as well. That more and more we are seeing that cultures are open to individuals who seek through their generosity to make a difference. That if you can become more important to more people by helping them, by turning on a light for them, by engaging with them, it's inevitable that your status will change. This idea of the smallest viable audience is essential. You will never raise your status with everyone. You will never find a status to live on, to live in, with everyone. The object is to find the smallest number of people for which you can be a generous contribution, for which you can do work that matters. Not only is that enough to fuel us, but it will make everything better. Hi, Seth. My name is Stuart Patience. I work in Jakarta, Indonesia. And I'd like to say thank you for your work, which I've found really tremendously helpful in the work that I do with charities here. And I have a question for you about education. I think many of your criticisms about industrial education are well-founded, but I feel that you also assume a level of basic skills in students and in teachers that simply aren't there in many places in the world, apart from among the elite. So my question is, what would the full stack of Seth Godin education look like, starting from no skills? And I wonder if industrial education doesn't do a better job of providing some of those skills at scale to the poorest among us than you might think. Thanks very much. Thank you for this question and for the generous work you do every day. It's an audacious question that I'm afraid to give a complete answer to, but I think it tees us up for the beginning of a conversation about education. So here we go. First, I want to tell you a story about Nicholas Negroponte. Nicholas, uh, one of the founders of Wired Magazine, one of the founder of the Media Lab at MIT, one of the smartest prognosticators I have ever had the privilege of knowing, did something interesting soon after he pushed the one laptop per child project to fruition. And that was this. He and his team went to two villages in Ethiopia, one called Wanchi that's located at 11,000 feet above sea level. In this village, the kids there have never seen a street sign, packaging, all of the detritus of modern Western culture. They taught a couple of the elders in the village how to use a solar charger. And with that, they left a giant sealed box inside the village. Inside the box was a laptop. This was not a laptop, a tablet. This was six years ago in 2012. A tablet, one for every kid in the village. There were no instructions. Even if there had been instructions, no one there could have read them. And then they left it there. Every week or two, they visited the village, not to help anyone, but to swap out the memory cards to see what kids had been doing with these tablets. So let me quote Nicholas here, just to give you an insight as to what happened. I thought the kids would play with the boxes. Within four minutes, one kid not only opened the box, he found the on-off switch and powered it up. Within five days, they were using 47 apps per child per day. Within two weeks, 
They were singing ABC songs in the village. And within five months, they had hacked Android. That when the tablets had been dropped off, the cameras had been turned off at the root. And these kids not only taught themselves how to read, they taught themselves how to customize the tablets, how to get into the operating system and make a change happen. Nicholas has really dramatic pictures of what happened after that, because after all, they were on the camera. The pictures mostly included older kids, seven, eight, nine years old, teaching the younger kids, three or four or five years old, how to use the tablets, how to read, how to explore. And the kids didn't spend their whole day playing games. They wrote, they created, they made art. So what's the purpose of the story? The purpose of the story is this. We made up a whole bunch of rules about what education was for in the 1800s and the early 1900s. Mostly, organized public education was designed and paid for to create generations of kids who could sit still, who would pay attention, who would do what they were told, and who would be ready for factory work. Because factory work was new. And we had a real problem. And the problem was not enough compliant factory workers. So the education system, based on the Prussian pseudo-military education system of the 1800s, is all about processing human beings like a factory. If they're defective, hold them back and process them again. Everything meeting spec, standardized tests, test and measure. And we assume that this is normal and this is right. But what's more important and we know this and we can show this again and again, is the attitude that the kids bring to school. And that attitude usually comes from home. It's the attitude that those amazing kids in Ethiopia showed, an attitude of inquisitiveness, of curiosity, of trying things out, of learning because you want to. If you want to teach somebody to be a baseball fan, you don't give them a baseball textbook and tell them that there's going to be a test, and that if they do well on the test, there'll be another test. And then if they do well on four years' worth of tests, maybe they can go to a game. It's not how baseball fans are created. We don't have to do anything to get baseball fans to measure batting statistics or to get involved in sabermetrics. They do it because they want to. And if we find someone who's deep into American history, they're not deep into American history because there's a test. They're deep into it because they like the status that comes from mastery. They like satisfying their curiosity. They're on a quest. They're exploring. They're resilient. So our future, our future where Google knows more than it already knows. Why in that future would we ever teach people to memorize stuff? What is the value of memorizing anything? If it's worth memorizing, it's worth looking up. Now, what we need to teach kids, first and foremost, from a really early age, is resiliency and curiosity, is energy and positivity and connection and respect and dignity and the willingness to do it again, exactly the way we teach a kid to walk. Every single kid who is physically able to walk, who's 10 years old, can walk. So what happened? Along the way, they didn't know how to walk, and then they did. Not from a textbook not from a video, but by standing up and falling down and standing up and falling down. That approach was worth it 
because they wanted to be able to walk. So my full stack begins with this. We are doing a lousy job of helping people who didn't have a head start discover their innate curiosity and resilience and energy. And almost as bad, we are not doing a very good job of amplifying it among people who are lucky enough to have it at home. When kids show up in first grade or second grade or third grade, we don't say, you can't say, you can't play. We don't spend a lot of time teaching them to get along, to organize, to lead, to solve interesting problems. Instead, we decide that only through drill and practice and a stern taskmaster are these kids going to learn how to read. But that's just not true. If we teach a kid to want to learn how to read, they're going to learn how to read. Russ Acoff, the great systems thinker, tells a story of being asked to help out a school that was having an enormous amount of trouble with literacy. They couldn't figure out how to get kids who weren't that into school to learn to read better. They were reading way below their grade level. He made a simple suggestion. Get old Charlie Chaplin movies, the silent ones, the ones with the subtitles, the words that would appear on the screen, and show them in the cafeteria all day. Let kids who wanted to drop out of class sit there and watch the movies instead. Well, within weeks, the kids started to figure out what the subtitles said because the movies were better once they knew. It's a simple example, a little out of date, but you get the idea. The idea is that properly motivated, humans learn stuff all the time. After all, you haven't had a teacher in years, in my case, decades, who could give you a grade. And yet you learn stuff all the time. You learn stuff that you want to learn. You learn stuff that learning it will help you achieve your goals. The mistake we make, starting when a kid is six years old, is forgetting that they are independent actors who are allowed to have goals, goals that are bigger than please the teacher and get an A. That if we can help kids discover that their actions unlock opportunities, we can build a cycle of unlocking opportunities. We need to teach kids, privileged or not, that their job is to solve interesting problems and to lead. Because all the other stuff, all the other stuff is going to get done by a computer. You'll probably say it's not magic, but surely there's something that you do. What do you do? How do you put yourself into that state of clarity? As I was listening to Hitsville, this question occurred to me, and I'd like to ask, when you write a blog or record a podcast, do you pick the topic first and then research the content to either write or record it? Or do you read and research so much that the topic will eventually present itself to you? Where do you get your ideas? It's a really common question, a good question, a question I wonder about all the time when I see people working in a medium I don't really understand. But the thing is that people who create stuff, they leave clues behind. If we look at the early work of Marcel Duchamp, or the early work of Jackson Pollock, or the early short stories of Isaac Asimov, we notice that they weren't geniuses when they started. That it turns out, just tune into some of Oprah Winfrey's early shows, 
that the secret, and there is a secret, is to merely begin. That we begin by showing up, by having curiosity, by trying out an explanation. If you blog 30 days in a row, your 31st blog will be better than your first one because you will find yourself entering a state. And the state is different than the state you were in in school. In school, the state was, I have a test tomorrow. I know how to study. I know that if I study, I'll regurgitate properly. And if I regurgitate properly, I'll get an A and I will win. And so we did that over and over and over again. We searched for the right answer. And the key word is the. But creatives, creatives know that there is no right answer. There's a right answer, an answer that's interesting, an answer that's good enough to share, but no, the right answer. You don't solve that problem. All you can do is contribute. So the state is entered because you know that tomorrow there's another blog post due. And what you're able to do is begin to act as if, that when a notion comes along, instead of discarding it because it's not fully formed, you welcome it. You have it sit down at the table with you. You ask it some questions. The notion gets more fully formed. At some point along the way, it's entirely possible the notion evaporates, wasn't worth it, it goes away. But some notions, some notions are worth writing on a post-it to leave by your computer monitor until tomorrow morning. And then, because your brain was thinking about it all night long, the notion can grow into a full-fledged idea. This process, the process of quietly putting yourself into a state where something unfounded, unknown, unproven shows up, that's the work. That's the work each of us needs to do now. And it is available to each of us. That when we look at who's been creative, all the way back to the cave paintings, all the way back to the person who figured out we should have a fire pit instead of lighting the fire inside the cave where we were trying to sleep. These great ideas happened because somebody decided they were going to be open to a possibility, open to maybe doing something that wasn't going to work. If you want to do good writing, good insight, begin by embracing bad writing, bad insight, more writing, write more, write more, write more. Don't force it on other people, but write more. Eventually, your brain, the resistance, as Steve Pressfield calls it, will stand down and get out of your way because it's just too much work to keep fighting, to keep putting out this bad writing. Sooner or later, your writing is going to get better. So I am not talking here about innate talent. I think innate talent is dramatically overrated. I think I'm talking about making a choice, deciding that you are going to go on this journey to do things. So in my case, the decision was I was going to notice things. If something was happening in the world, if human beings were attracted to it, voting for it, buying it, I wanted to be able to understand why. I want there to be an explanation. If there isn't an explanation, I want to try explanations out, dig a little deeper, talk about them, explore them, 
repeat and repeat and repeat. That process helps me understand marketing. But you can use the same thing to try to understand Parkinson's disease or education or how to run a mile in less than four minutes by asking the question, positing a theory, an answer that might not be right, testing, measuring, and repeating. This isn't magic. It's simply effort. And it's available to all of us. Hey, Seth. This is Gerard from Trinidad and Tobago. I ask a lot of questions, but I want to get better at them. So my question is, what makes a good question great? Before Google was a thing, there was Ask Jeeves. And the conceit of Ask Jeeves was, as a search engine, you would pose your search as a question. And they'd written code so they could ignore all the what's and the who's and figure out what you were actually looking for. We now live in this era where we have access to videos or to text just about everything. So if we're going to ask a question in real time, as we spoke about on a previous episode, if we're going to do it live, we better have a good reason. The answer can't be, oh, it's on page 17 of the manual. Because if the answer is on page 17 of the manual, you would have done everyone a favor by looking it up instead. So what makes a great question? Well, it helps if the person who's answering it wants to run in lots of directions you didn't even think to ask about. Because a great question happening live is a kickoff to a riff, to an exploration, to a new theory. But the other thing I'd say is this. A great question is asked by someone who has done their homework. Instead of asking the question that can be answered with what's on page 17, what we do instead is describe what we've already learned, describe the hypothetical, describe the particular, and use that to create a new pattern match that the person answering the question can run with. That a great question, then, is a door opener. And a great answer doesn't shut the door. A great answer provokes people into going even further. There'll be no questions submitted next week at akimbo.link because, after all, I just answered your questions this week. I'm really looking forward to coming back with Season 2, and I want to thank you for tuning in. It's been a great 16 episodes. My goal here has been to provoke us into looking at the culture differently, to turn a 20-minute podcast into either a longer blog post or a shorter book, something that can get us to think and, most of all, take action. It's called Akimbo because we're trying to bend the culture to make things better. Go make a ruckus, and thanks for being here. (laughs) 
Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. And yes, there were questions about last week's episode about the long term, some really good questions, ones like this one. Hi, Seth. It's Richard Williams from the UK. I was really interested in your podcast on long-term thinking, but particularly the stuff you were saying around how to influence people's behavior, there needs to be something immediate. I wondered how you saw that in contrast with the fact that as leaders, we're often told we need to create a vision and create a long-term thought, and yet it seems to be the short-term thought that gets people to take action. Um, wonder what your thoughts were, Seth. Thanks very much. And similarly, like this one. First, if you're someone who's selling what is essentially a long-term benefit, what's the solution when you market? Is it to simply target those people who think in terms of the long-term like you do, or... Do you just widen your market um, and you try and sell short-term agency and hope that over time, as you build trust, you can move your customer or client towards a long-term mindset? I think it's worth taking a minute to answer them here in our wrap-up episode because the long-term versus the short-term is something we all wrestle with. Imagine what would happen if there was a 95% tax on all investment returns unless you kept them for 10 or 20 years. How would that shift the way investors deal with the short term, investing in the future, building entities that last? Okay, so how do we do this? How do we engage with people who are focused, like all of us are, on the short run? Well, consider the case of Jan Brandt. When AOL was building out the first generation of the popular internet, they had a long-term vision. And the long-term vision was a lot like life as we see it today. Telematics, social networking, the idea that all this information would be available at everyone's fingertips, that people would be connected, that the world would change. But that's not what they said to people when they showed up in front of them. Jan spent $300 million mailing CDs and floppy disks to every person in America. And the offer was simple. The offer was, you can get online right now for free and find out what it's like. Or else, you can throw out this thing in your hand that feels sort of valuable. Don't waste it. Go, go, go. That offer didn't highlight what was going to happen in 10 years if lots of people got on the internet. It was about now. So what we do as leaders, as people who want to make change, is we have to persuade ourselves that we're on a long-term mission. But what people are going to embrace if they're going to move forward now is how that long-term vision makes them feel today. What will they tell their friends today? How will they go to sleep tonight? That feeling brings the future into the present. So that's what behavioral economics has been studying. That's how we've learned to help people with a 401k that defaults to on not to off, that if we can describe a story, an action that in the long run is worth doing, but in the short run is urgent, that increases our status, that connects us to the people we care about, that gives us a story we can share, 
That will lead people to take action right this minute. Hi, Seth. Paul here from Australia. If life's a series of games, and if we're programmed to naturally seek the shortcut, what strategies have you found helpful in increasing the discipline and commitment needed to pursue a long-term approach to a problem rather than the short-term win? Everything I've been saying is counterindicated by the fact that sometimes we get something big done. Sometimes we do things that last more than a few minutes. That if you want to climb Mount Everest, first, you've got to get on a plane and go all the way to Kathmandu. Then, you've got to somehow get yourself to the Kumbu Valley. Then, you find yourself in a tea house. Then, you find some people to climb with you. Then, you find yourself at base camp. And every step along the way is annoying, difficult, or expensive. And yet some people make it all the way to Everest. So how do we explain a series of short-term unpleasant steps on the way to a goal that's important to us? Well, I think what's going on is this. Even though it may be difficult to sit in a plane for 18 hours in coach in the back flying all the way to Nepal, that whole time we're doing it, we're telling ourselves a story. And it's a story about not quitting, a story of doing something that matters to us, a story of step by step. So the stories, the stories are short term. The stories are the very lever that helps us keep going. So what it takes to go on this long-term journey is the ability to tell ourselves and to tell others a story, and it's a story in which every day has progress in it, where it is better to go to medical school, to get through organic chemistry, to do all of those steps that take us through the dip, than it is to say to people, I quit. And that belief, the belief that the steps are worth it, is why a long-term vision is so important. How can so many people listen to a podcast they love, and so few take the time to ask a question. As we wrap up our first season, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank all the people who have submitted questions. And I want to single out Alex De Palma, my erstwhile producer, who has been there from the start. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for all your questions. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. 
Here are three steps you can take. First, go to the carbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.